I think a good company is not that different, uh, certainly a, a good small biotech company, not that different than, than an, an academic lab like mine. Um, it's all about people. It's about teamwork. Um, the individuals in that team have their own goals and perspectives, uh, but it's about working together. Are you working in research, trying to do the best science you can? Are you a team leader, a research assistant, postdoc, PhD student, or any other type of scientist? Are you looking for a place where you can sit, relax, and listen to inspiring people? Well, we have good news for you. You've just found what you're looking for. Hi, everybody. My name is Renaud Pourpre. And I am Jonathan Weitzman. Welcome, Welcome to, to The, the Lonely Pipette. Helping scientists do better science. My name is Steve Jackson. I'm Professor of Biology at the University of Cambridge, Head of Cancer Research UK Labs at an institute called the Gurdon Institute, which is part of Cambridge University. My lab here studies DNA repair mechanisms, and I'm very happy and honoured to share my tips with the lonely pipette today. Thanks, Steve. So Steve Jackson studied biochemistry at the University of Leeds in the UK, followed by a PhD with Jean Beggs, first at Imperial College London, and then at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. He did a postdoc with Bob Tejan at the University of California, Berkeley, before returning to the UK to create a group funded by the Cancer Research UK at the University of Cambridge, where he's been ever since. Today, Steve is the Frederick James Quick Professor of Biology and Head of Cancer Research UK Labs at the Gurdon Institute. His lab studies how cells detect and repair DNA damage in the context of cancer and other age-related diseases. Steve has been extremely active in turning basic science discoveries into applications by creating several biotech companies. In 1997, he founded the drug discovery company Kudos Pharmaceuticals, where he was the part-time chief scientific officer until its acquisition by AstraZeneca. In 2010, he founded Mission Therapeutics, to exploit discoveries in protein ubiquitination. And he recently co-founded Adrestia, I hope I'm saying it right, Therapeutics, uh, searching for new therapeutic targets. Steve is a fellow of the Royal Society and the UK Academy of Medical Sciences. He has received many prizes, including the Gagner and Van Heck Prize for Medicine, the King Faisal International Prize for Science, the Heineken Prize for Medicine, the Genome Stability Network Medal, the Fondation Arc Leopold Griffuel Award for Translation and Clinical Research, and the Royal Society Mullard Award. Steve, thanks for coming to share your tips with the Lonely Pipette. It's a pleasure. Thank you uh, so much, Steve. It's, uh, it's an honor to have you on, on this podcast. Uh, we were waiting really to talk with you and to have this discussion uh, today. And uh, really thank you again for that. <laughs> if you, because you, you told us that you have listened to some of our previous episodes. So you may remember that we always start with one question, which is called the origin story questions. Can you tell us how you decided to become a scientist? How did I become a scientist? Well, I don't know if it was one decision or I drifted into that, but even thinking back to my youngest years, it was clear that I was always interested in innovation and science. <clears throat> I was always collecting bugs, worms, ladybirds and whatever in the garden. I used to grow plants and record their heights and do graphs of them and whatever. So that was from a fairly <laughs> wow. young age. But 
The very earliest example I can remember um, or can remember my parents telling me uh, was at school when I was around eight. Um, I uh, told the teacher uh, how I'd come up with the discovery and I wanted to know how you could patent things. Um, (laughs) And I was a bit disappointed when the teacher told me that somebody had already done this. So I was rather disappointed, but maybe that invigorated my entrepreneurial passions. I love that. If you hadn't become a scientist, what do you think you would have become? Uh, If I wasn't a scientist, either something to do with gardening or the, or the environment or, um, a rock star. I prefer it to be the latter, but I'm not sure I had the, uh, <laughs> the, the abilities. I, I was lead singer, uh, and uh, bass guitarist for a, for a heavy rock band in, in my teenage years. And I still, <laughs> what was the band called? It was called, <laughs> it was called the, the underground. And, um, we were, uh, into tr- dark, heavy rock. That was our thing. And uh, I still, I've still got a good guitar at home and, and, uh, I'll occasionally go up to the attic and, and pretend I can sing very well. With, with my music. <laughs> Just love this. Thank you. Um, can you think of a moment you considered uh, leaving science? I don't think I've actually contemplated leaving science. Uh, I mean, with all one's careers, most people have ups and downs. I've had my share of disappointments being turned down for jobs, turned down for grants, turned down by Cambridge when I applied here as an undergraduate. <laughs> so we all have disappointments, but I don't think I ever got to that stage. It, it, it was difficult when I had my young young kids fixer up a house that had no roof, no back wall, no windows. And we were living in one quarter of that for some time. And I was trying to set up a company. Um, but even then I never contemplated quitting science. So, so West coming back to Cambridge, kind of uh, revenge <laughs> of this moment. <laughs> It was interesting. I came from a background where you weren't really expected to go into further education despite higher education. And so I, in, in many ways, broke the mold there with my family. And the school I was in suggested I apply for Cambridge, but I didn't know you really had to learn things for it. So I just turned up to the entrance exam here and was shocked that I didn't do particularly well in the maths. So I totally flunked the maths. I did well in the others, other subjects, but I was turned down. Uh, but it was nice many years later when obviously I came to Cambridge, but then became elected as one of the youngest ever professors here in 1994, 95. So, so that was, that was sort of a, a nice feeling, but there was no revenge attached to it. So how, how have you chosen the projects that you work on in your lab? And where does the passion for DNA repair come from? It's, it's interesting, actually. I mean, I can be quite a decisive person when I spot opportunities, but this is for myself, but also people in my lab. I often say, you know, the best opportunities often come when you're not looking for them. And if you're not careful, you'll miss them. So my move into DNA repair actually came by accident. It goes all the way back to my postdoc when I was carrying out a Sunday afternoon experiment. And for me, Sunday afternoon experiments were when you were just trying to find a little bit more time to be in the lab before going home and you'd finished up the jobs for the week. So um, I'd had this idea for a while about looking for uh, whether or not a protein kinase might exist that was switched on by DNA. I was studying transcription and I basically did an experiment where I discovered this DNA dependent protein kinase. A little bit later, I tried to repeat that experiment. It didn't work. And actually it was Figuring out the reason why it didn't work is that the first experiment, when I did it exactly the same way, did work. And I realized the only difference was the first experiment, I'd used linearized plasmid DNA that I was using for cloning at the time. Whereas the second time I did the experiment, trying to repeat it, it was using the same plasmid, but in a circular form. So the only difference was was one was a circle and one was a linear piece of DNA. Weird thing is, if that Sunday afternoon experiment had taken place with me reaching for the plasmid DNA, I would have never discovered the DNAPK. (laughs) 
it took a while for the penny to drop, but we realized, me and my first student here in Cambridge, that DNA-PK is activated by DNA breaks. And that's why it was being activated. And that led me into DNA repair. It wasn't expected. I wasn't actually that excited about it at the time because it was a field I hadn't chosen to move into, but it was an exciting <laughs> new field. And I was one of the first groups into that space. And uh, I guess, as they say, the rest is history. So, so many successful scientists have come out of your lab and I've met actually many of them. And what are mentoring practices that you use and that have a significant impact on your team? I think to be entirely accurate, you probably ought to ask them, but my, my view is something <laughs> that the feedback I get is that um, I've always been very dedicated, very passionate, enthusiastic, leading from the front in terms of my enthusiasm about the lab and their data in, in particular. The other thing that has really worked over the years is to have a, a lab environment where I'm, I'm choosing to join the lab, not just people who are good at what they do, but are collaborative, cooperative, fun people to have around. And I think if you have an environment where people are enjoying uh, being, resonating with each other, sharing ideas, then that brings people on. And if you have that kind of environment, science has ups and downs. And my, the way I look at this is if you're in that environment, the highs become higher because you share them and the lows become higher. They don't become as low because your colleagues will talk you through any difficulties. And just like my PhD, my postdoc, uh, and actually my career, every scientist virtually. I'm sure every scientist has ups and downs and you make the most of yourself and the people around you um, if you're cooperative. So, so your ideas about mentoring, were they inspired by particular mentors that you'd had? I think we're all influenced, of course, by, by, by those um, all the way back into childhood, but formative years. I mean, of course, I did have some teachers that I looked up to uh, along the years. Uh, my biology teacher, uh, Dr. Bird uh, joined my A-level, was very passionate about biology, so much that half of what he taught us wasn't even on the syllabus. He was just so excited about biology. And for me, my PhD supervisor was uh, Gene Beggs, was, 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 uh, was somebody who I learned a lot from. Robert Tijan, he, he was a tremendously passionate, still is, individual. You know, he'd, he'd turn up middle of the night at the weekend and whatever. And uh, Christmas day, I'll be getting a phone call at home asking about experiments. Um, you know, I remember one particular example, I'd gone into the lab on Christmas morning and worked, <laughs> uh, worked for four hours and then gone back to my house to, to have Christmas lunch with a few others. Um, and Tej called us a few times during the, during the afternoon, asking where experiments were. And at one stage, he, he asked uh, a chap called Dirk Bowman, who was there uh, about, know um, his, yeah. you know, Dirk, his experiment. Yeah. And Dirk said, yeah, I did it this morning. And I put the autorad down in the minus 80. And that was the end of the phone call. 10 minutes later, <laughs> the phone goes again. It's Tej. He's after Dirk. I hand it over to Dirk and Dirk sort of answers it and says, the, the, the first lane is the control. <laughs> <laughs> so in that 10 minutes, Tej had gone and developed this guy's autorad and wanted to know what's what. Now, I'm, I don't know if I've ever been quite, quite, that, um, uh, uh, quite like that, but Tej was, was a real role model. Um, he always saw positives uh, when, when you think, thought you got a disappointing result. And that's something I think I tried to do in the lab, um, to identify positives when at, at first something might look like a negative result. And of course, science, a lot of the time, you don't get the result you want, but that's still good science and it's still moving you on. There's been other people I've admired over the years um, in Cambridge, most notably uh, Ronald Lasky, Ron Lasky, who hired me here many years ago, uh, and Sir, Sir, Sir John Gurdon, who is still running a lab now. He's nearly 30 years older than me, 
And I could never get over in the early days when I came to the Institute and actually even more recently, if I come in on a Saturday afternoon or a Saturday morning, John's car's often here, usually here. He's tremendously passionate and driven individual, just loves science. Can we ask you about, uh, about you said you always to be positive uh, about, about results, um, but this pressure to, to have positive results, do you think um, there are times when it, when it can encourage people to maybe step over the, the honesty barrier? This can happen to anyone. Do you, do you have, I, I know there's been a case in your lab. Would you like to share some thoughts with us about, about what the supervisor's role in, in, in helping maintain honesty in the lab? Yes, it's it, it. This this is obviously honesty is fundamental to to science. We're about um, what science is about is discovering truths about the world, about the universe, and about life, and then conveying that information to to our fellow humans and other scientists. Uh, so honesty and transparency is is, is crucial. Uh, and for many years, my lab, you know, we have a we have a, a lab values uh, thing. We go through it at retreats every year. Now, during my PhD, what, what is that? That's a sentence. It's like a mission it's, statement. It's just a set of key lab values. Well, the values we have, uh, number one is, is honesty, integrity. And then uh, it's things such as inclusiveness. We help each other's, et cetera, et cetera. We have a number of words uh, and it's, it's a, a table. And then next to those words are a sentence or two explaining what that actually means. I think every now and then it is worthwhile just asking the question, what, what is our research all about? Research is really about understanding fundamental truths that we uh, want to share with the world. And during my PhD, uh, science was, it was competitive. It, science has always been competitive and it's always been uh, the kind of thing you want to move to the next stage. But I think one thing that has happened um, over the years is that the pressure to publish has become higher and higher and people are increasingly focused on delivering papers in order to progress their career. In my case, during my PhD and postdoc, most of the time I was just trying to figure things out. I wasn't thinking about publications, but of course you realize that that is the output that, that one needs to achieve. And I think um, clearly under some circumstances, um, certain individuals, particularly at certain stages in their lives, um, may be prone to cut corners sometimes because they think they know the answers, other times for other reasons perhaps. It's going to be the case in other arenas in life as well. If you have a large number of people under a large amount of pressure over many years, it is likely that one of those individuals will cut corners. You know, I did have an example of that in my lab a number of years ago, and this was very unfortunate for everybody involved, particularly the scientist who did fabricate his results because it ended up not enhancing his career. It did apparently enhance it for a short period of time, but in the end, served to severely undermine and actually finish off his career. And he was a super smart guy, um, intrinsically very nice guy, as far as I could tell, very well liked, and we're all very, very shocked uh, about what happened. How did that impact you? Because it must be quite traumatic for the head of the lab to go through that. Huh? A absolutely. Um, fundamental to science and running an effective lab, in my view, is actually trusting people as well. You don't want to, and, and of course you can't with the complexity of science, being looking over every member of your lab's shoulder all the time. You can't be visiting them every time they do, do develop a result or whatever. It is about trust. And so for me, uh, and actually members of other members of the lab, it was quite distressing. And of course there are certain people out there who would like to believe that it's more of a sy systematic, systemic thing that might reflect on the lab head. Um, and so there are individuals out there 
who um, rub their hands in glee when they when they see these kinds of things popping up every now and then. And of course, they do pop up now and then. And there are organisations now who basically their job is they've appointed themselves to go looking for issues with papers in the past, some very far in the distant past. You know, I don't do this kind of thing, but um, I would imagine that if you look really, really hard at the entire outputs of many distinguished scientists, you might come across um, occasional errors that have crept in for whatever reason. Of course, the biggest endorsement of good science is not a publication. It's conveying that information to the rest of the world and then finding that other people recapitulate it and actually build on it. And so that's what I reflect on the fact that my members of my lab over the years have made discoveries that have been built upon in their own labs and by others. And that's how science moves forward. We can all make mistakes. We can always interpret things incorrectly. That's not bad science. Um, we do our best. And in the end, the cream rises to the top, as uh, my grandmother would say. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you, Steve, for, for sharing this with us. Um, yeah, we had another question about mentoring is now, if we look at the other side, what do you consider as bad mentoring advice? I think there's many ways to be a good mentor, and there are very many ways to be a bad mentor. Being a mentor for people in my lab is not about getting them to deliver results in the most effective way. It's about having an environment where they'll grow as a scientist and become more and more independent to whatever limits that individual would have. So for me, I think positive mentoring is ideally tailoring things to the individual. Different people benefit best from different types of mentoring and doing it in a way, not in a self-centered way from my perspective, but trying to draw out the very best of that person. And I think this probably comes fairly intrinsic as an instinct in me because I've never really analyzed this a great extent over the years, but I must have been doing something right because a large proportion of my trainees have gone on to do fantastic things in their lives. And just about everybody going through my lab over the years um, has gone on to uh, progress their careers in very positive ways. Do you think you've been particularly good at picking them? I think I am good at picking people for what, I don't know where that comes from. It's, it's more of a, an instinct, it's more of a feel. Um, and as I said a little bit earlier on, it's, it's, it's not just the scientist, it's the person that I look for in the lab. And it's the environment. Once you've got a lab set on a good trajectory in terms of the ethos and the cohesiveness, you bring somebody in and they're likely to adapt to that environment. Once, you, once you've set a lab in a right direction, I think it becomes easier to, to keep things going. Labs evolve over the years, of course, but I must be fairly good at picking people or they're good at picking a lab that fits them. It's a two-way thing. Somebody joining a lab, it's a two-way interview and it's a two-way relationship going forward. Perfect. That, that was the, my next question, but you just <laughs> <Okay>. answered it. <laughs> so, so in, in, uh, in 1997, you, you founded your first company. Uh, it's Kudos Pharmaceutical, yeah. if I say it right. And you had this mission, as you, I think we read that, you, you had this mission to translate knowledge to world society. Yeah. So, so we were interested what or who, because it can be a who, uh, made you decide to embark in this adventure with this mission. It's interesting to step back and think how Kudos arose. The, the name of the, the company came from the fact that my whole career in DNA repair is based on what the protein Ku does. Ku is a DNA N binding protein, and, and, it, and it's, the, it's the DNA N binding bit of DNA PK, and that has led me into the DNA re repair field through discovering this DNA damage activated protein kinase. My first five years as an independent group leader here in Cambridge were tremendously successful. 
um, in terms of science publications and whatever. And at the end of that five years or towards the end of the end of the five years, I got a review from Cancer Research UK and it was all very, very positive. But I remember at the very end of the uh, review um, was a statement along the lines of this is good science. The only the only concern we have is that this might not actually translate into helping cancer patients. So at the end of my first five years, the penny did drop that the way science was going and is going is that if you can find translational opportunities, then you know we should be exploring them. People who put money into their taxes to government-funded research or put money into charities to fund chat cancer research or other medical research, these people are doing this in many cases because they, they expect the results to have the potential to be translated. So for me, it, it was it's always been an, an ethical thing. And in the context of QDOS, my lab got to a stage where we had enzymatic assays for enzymes like DNAPK, for PARP, and we had small molecule drugs that could already, or small molecule compounds that could be used to inhibit them in cell culture or in biochemical assays. And so knowing that, um, I just thought, wouldn't it be cool to develop DNA repair inhibitors? And so I marched off to Cancer Research UK and the Cambridge Development Office here with the idea of setting up a company. But it wasn't easy. It was counterintuitive. Why, mm -hmm. why the heck would you want to inhibit DNA repair? Um, and it took almost two years of huge amount of effort at a time when I had two young kids to get the company <laughs> off the ground. Uh, but we got, got there in the end. Some VCs in the end, I guess they saw the spark in me and they saw that this was a new area. They didn't where it was going to go, but they placed a bet. And in the end, the bet paid off. You could have just patented it and let, let Cancer Research UK license it. Yeah. Why did you decide to be so involved yourself? Yeah, with the difficulties of yeah. leading a lab on the site too. Well, I, I'm not saying ideas are cheap, but you can, you can have an idea, you can patent an idea, but a patent just sitting there isn't going to change the world. In the end, to change the world, somebody or a set of people need to do something. And I talked to pharmaceutical companies and they tend to be conservative. They weren't going to do anything. And if I'd filed a patent and it would just sit, the best person to translate that opportunity was myself because I had the passion for the field. I had the network. And in the end, I think you, that's how things happen in the world. People need to get up and get things done. Did you think at this moment, I mean, do you think at this moment you, you needed to grab some extra help that from other, I don't know, skills or network that you didn't have? Well, every time we step outside our comfort zone, or even when we're in our comfort zone, we benefit from advice from others. And I was very fortunate that um, Cambridge University uh, was helpful. I had some mentoring advice, business mentoring advice from the University of Cambridge and Cancer Research uh, Campaign, which become Cancer Research UK. Um, they invested some money. Uh, they provided a grant to get the company off the ground for me to hire the first people and to get the balls rolling. Um, so that was very, very helpful. And it was also very helpful being in an environment. It was much less mature, the biotech arena, though, then. But already then, 25 years ago, there were already success stories in and around Cambridge. And there were a few people I managed to meet to provide advice. And for me, there's no better way to lower activation barriers um, to doing something new is to talk to somebody who's done it in the past. And um, that really helped me along. So, so we were interested how you managed to navigate in this world of business. So, and what, what were the difficulties in the learning curve? So I think business in that regard is not all that different than, than science. If you're at the cutting edge of science, you, you follow your nose, you follow your instincts, and you try to surround yourself with people at least as smart, ideally even smarter 
than you. Um, and I was fortunate to recruit some very good people uh, into QDOS. Um, a couple of those um, trained in my lab, Graham Smith, um, a postdoc in my lab, transitioned over. We managed to hire Neil Martin, who'd uh, had some drug screening experience from the pharma industry. Mark O'Connor, who was a very driven biologist uh, connecting into this arena. And then we built the team. A critical thing actually was the VCs bringing to my attention a number of CEO, chief executive officer opportunities. Um, one of whom, uh, Barry Ward, uh, John Barry Ward, we got together uh, and we worked tremendously well together. He's a very experienced pharmaceutical biotech company executive. Um, and uh, coupling him together with that experience together with an entrepreneurial but very green um, scientific entrepreneur myself, that worked very, very well. So, so you told us that QDOS came from the Q, KU, from the Q protein. Yeah. How do you how do you choose the names for your other companies? It's it's interesting. Uh, the numbers names for the companies often come from others. Uh, Kudos was actually suggested by my wife Teresa. Um, <laughs> Mish, Mission also came came up through others. Um, it turned out that when I was a postdoc, um, I didn't know it at the time. I had the nickname Man on a Mission. It was one evening reflecting on on that. Um, I actually a discussion. I believe it was Teresa. I, I thought, well, Mission would be a, a good name for a company. Uh, a number of people thought it was religious, but it wasn't. It was about <laughs> wanting, to, wanting to change the world. I've met with some of my colleagues uh, from uh, Bob Tesian's lab and asked them why uh, they give me that name uh, behind my back. Uh, and I think it was, this, <laughs> was a particularly uh, focused individual. And I remember um, when I was doing important experiments, I would have a do not disturb sign on my back. Um, and I would play very loud rock music. As, as, as a way of suppressing um, any interference. Um, my final company, or my, my latest company. Latest, um, yeah, not final. Latest company. <laughs> uh, well, we, we'll see. Uh, <laughs> is, is Adrestia Therapeutics. And the, the, the name Adrestia came up from a number of reasons. One, it's, it's good to have a name beginning with A, or beginning with the alphabet. <laughs> uh, and Adrestia is a le lesser-known Greek goddess of divine retribution. Uh, and uh, she's a warlike character, but she writes wrongs um, and she identifies things that aren't right and corrects them. And that's what Adrestia is about. It's identifying disease imbalances uh, and systematizing ways to identify disease rebalancing targets uh, for neurodegenerative disease, cancer, cardiovascular disease and whatever. So that's where Adrestia uh, came from. If a young researcher uh, tomorrow comes to you and asks you how he can, what is the first step to prepare to translate, I can say, his academic work or just to start to follow this path, what, what will you recommend him or her? It's difficult to know what the recipe for success is. I, I have been approached by younger scientists saying that, that they are wanting to become entrepreneurs. And some people can probably achieve good entrepreneurship through that approach. In my case, the thirst for science comes first and you move forward in a field such as mine, DNA repair and DNA damage response. And then you stumble across things and maybe lying in bed in the evening, thinking about things, you realize that there's a translational opportunity. So for me, there was never really a formula or a plan to have my first company, second company, or my latest company. It's just the penny sort of dropped and um, that there was an opportunity there. Um, and it came out of the initial goal, obviously, is to move forward with the science. 
I think the other issue is, I said earlier on, that the recognition that my lab is funded by organisations that get their funding from people who are thinking about healthcare, thinking about loved ones that they've lost through cancer or neurodegenerative disease. Uh, and I think it's, uh, it is actually a, something that scientists should be looking for where possible. Mm -hmm. uh, but you can't, you can't just sit there and say, I'm going to develop a company on this <laughs> without the science to back it up. So with all this experience in, in the biotech industry, um, are there any tips that you've brought back to your academic lab? I think a good company is not that different, uh, certainly a, a good small biotech company, not that different than, than an, an academic lab like mine. Um, it's all about people. It's about teamwork. Um, the individuals in that team have their own goals and perspectives, uh, but it's about working together. And I think another thing is never to be afraid to ask for advice. There is often the perception that in business, people don't help each other, but that's not true. Say the science campus where my company's mission and address are right now, uh, there's a tremendous number of individuals who are delighted to provide advice pro bono if, if you seek to ask it. So it is also about having a network, going to uh, the bar when the bar's open uh, every now and then to talk to colleagues, go to conferences, talk about your stuff and interact with others about their stuff and see if you can find ways um, to move things forward. Often I find that when I'm talking about my science to, to others, that's when I get my next idea. It's not so much internal, it's when you're bouncing ideas off others. So in the end, a good company, biotech company, has to be founded on solid science. It has to have a vision, but you've got to have the people from the chief executive all the way through the organization to implement on that. You also need the funding. Uh, and that's the <laughs> fundamental thing. Uh, that's Money makes the world go around, and that's in academia, but it's also the case in biotech. Sometimes, however, you, you can have too much money or you can have the perception <laughs> that you don't need to think about things. And it's I think it's always good to be in an environment where you're a little bit careful with the money because that forces you to think more than once, think twice, mm -hmm. think three times about an important experiment or a new initiative in a company uh, before pressing the button. It's very easy to start things, but it's much more difficult to stop things. And I think that's the case with academic projects, but it's also the case uh, with projects in industry as well. So, right. so, so how, do you, how do you balance your, your time between the companies and the, the lab? Is, is, is it one day a week, two day a week, or is it just all mixed mornings, afternoons? How does that work? Yes, it is a difficult balancing act, I must admit. And one goes through phases where it's impossible to balance uh, things, and, uh, but you come through those. Now with QDOS, um, it was more physical separation. I would spend two and a half days a week to start with, and it gradually decreased at the company and the rest of the time here. Uh, where it is with Adrestia now is I spend one full day there a week. But while I'm there, I'll still be picking up my academic emails, communicating with my academic PA, yeah, uh, and actually emailing my lab here. And vice versa, the rest of the week, or at the weekend for that matter, I'm, I'm actually in tune with both places, communicating with people on both places uh, virtually all the time. That can provide an, its own balance uh, issue in terms of when can you switch off from the uh, ability to work continually. And, uh, well, I think then comes this issue of balancing all that with recreation, which I must admit I struggle with, but uh, I manage to just about muddle through. The other thing in, in relation to all of this, if you're surrounded by people who can take some of the heat, they can, you can delegate to certain others uh, in ways that you know, is helping them develop, then that's a good arrangement to be in. I'm not a micromanager. I don't need to be involved in everything. 
I'm quite happy to hand things over to others um, who often do a better job than me because they have a little bit more bandwidth. So that's been great, Steve, to hear all about your academic and and biotech uh, activities. We're going to take a very short break. And then after the break, we'll be hearing more about, about Steve and how you get this balance right. Hey, folks, don't run away. You're listening to The Lonely Piper with Rono Pourpre and Jonathan Weissman, where our goal is to help scientists do better science. If you're enjoying the show and you want to learn more, you can follow us on Twitter at Lonely Pipette. And please share the podcast with your friends. If you don't want to miss any of our future episodes, you can subscribe to our mailing list and join our community. Click on the subscription link on our Twitter account. It's as simple as that. Take a few moments to get more tips from the Lonely Pipette. Welcome back. You're listening to the Lonely Pipette and we're talking to Steve Jackson from the University of Cambridge. Steve, you told us in the first half, you have all these things going on, the lab, the biotech companies. We wondered like what, what life looks like uh, in the Jackson home. So do, do you have a, a morning routine to get all this in going in the morning? I think we all do best if we have some sorts of routine. I must admit, after feeding the cat and the dog in the morning, uh, and maybe just quickly picking up uh, the BBC News to see what's happening in the world um, on my phone, just for a couple of minutes, I invariably uh, grab a coffee and go to my computer, check through the emails, bat through a few things to send them off to my PA so that she's, she can be working on those when she when she starts an hour or two later. And then, um, yes, I'd like to say I exercise every morning. That's what I'd like to do. We don't like to say that. <laughs> but um, if the weather's... if. It's, it can be very nice start to the day, actually, when it uh, is to walk to work. So if I can build a little bit of uh, time into my mm -hmm. schedule, I can walk to work in 25 minutes. It takes me 10, 15 to cycle. So, so that is a good way of, of starting the day. Um, and I do that a couple of times a week. Uh, and then it's just straight into emails, drafting responses to the, this, that, and the other. And the favorite part of the day for me, work day, is, is meeting up with members of my lab and ask them how, it's, how things are going on looking forward to meetings, et cetera. Of course, I, I do have a personal private life as well, and it's important for me to balance that up. I do like to go cycling, uh, go to the gym, do some gardening. I do have those kind of pursuits as well. And in normal times, uh, as we're getting towards now, after COVID hopefully looks like it's receding, is planning my days and weeks around travel um, to conferences uh, or to uh, meeting colleagues here in Cambridge, London. Or, or further afield, and I think they're important anchor points for the for the year in a way. And uh, and I mm -hmm. often hang off lots of my other things off those types of things. Lots of deadlines, more deadlines nowadays than they used to be. Um, but having some routines in there, uh, and at the at, at, towards the end of the day, I, I tend to put off until towards the end of the day the less mentally stressful things, uh, which I'll go through with a glass of wine or two. <laughs> Great, great. I mean, that's that's a, that's also what I'm doing here at home, working on my on, on my projects. It's uh, all the painful and difficult tasks I I just keep it for the morning, so when I'm motivated. Yeah, I, th I think one thing I've tried to learn over the years is is to schedule your priorities. It's so easy now to not see the wood for the trees or just be in response mode all the time now to the barrage of emails and other requests. Mm -hmm. And it is very important, and I have this in my diary, um, two blocks every day where I block off time for, unless nice. unless something's crucial, nothing goes in there, and it gives me a little bit of uh, bandwidth to 
do the things that I, I, I think are most important to do. Great. That's a really good recommendation. Thank you. So, so what is something about yourself that people would be surprised to discover about Steve Jackson? People who've known me for a while don't get many surprises because I'm, I'm, I'm very open. You know, I'll talk about my uh, exploits being a rock singer and, um, and whatever. <laughs> Maybe people would be surprised about the fact that I'm a very slow reader. I don't read. I don't read novels. I've read less than five novels in the last 20 years. Um, I don't have the concentration to, to read a, a novel. So maybe that's a surprise. I, I do a lot of reading and I spend most of my days working on my computer, doing documents and whatever. And I'm quite good at it, uh, but I find it very hard to sit down and read quietly. You should not be shameful because I have the same problem. And I ask people who are kind of expert about this and they told me it's just because you, you never found the good type of novel that fit for you. <laughs> <laughs> so that's why you're not into, into it. I, th I think it, <laughs> Did you like the, the five, the five novels that you read? Did you like them? <laughs> Yeah, that's the question. <laughs> yeah, actually, two of them I read uh, uh, when I was totally wiped out having set up Kudos and Mission, actually. Uh, it was some downtime. Um, my problem is I don't sit down there for long enough. I can be at work and there's always something else to do. I can be at home and there's always some rose that needs pruning or some grass that needs cutting <laughs> or a dog that needs walking. And I'm, and I'm, I'm not... I'm not the kind of person who can just sit there quietly unless I'm in an engaged environment like this uh, in terms of this kind of dynamic. I can sit here and do this for a long time, but just quietly sitting on my own, I find it difficult. Mm. <laughs> so is there among this, uh, in the last two years, uh, what you believe or behavior or habit uh, has most improved your life, do you think? I think it's a double-edged sword, but video calls such as this, Zoom, Teams, or whatever platform people use, has changed the world. I mean, it was only three, two and a half years ago, I used to go down to London probably two or three times a week to be on a one or two hour meeting. And it would take up a tremendous portion of the day. And even less than three years ago, I decided I couldn't make a meeting. And I was trying to patch into one of those meetings on a, on a, on a video phone setup. And it was rubbish. I couldn't hear anything. I couldn't contribute. So I think This kind of venue now that allows people to interact um, across the world even is wonderful. It doesn't substitute for the, for the personal contact, but it's, it's, it's a different way. And I think there's three of us talking on this, this call here, and it, it works pretty well. Once you get to five or 10 or larger sets yeah. of people, it doesn't work so well. Um, and so the negative, I think, is that we haven't been doing the proper conferences Uh, and you can't substitute for those kind of real get-togethers. Um, so that's a habit. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a technology. It's an approach that I think is is revolutioning many people's working lives as well as their private lives as well. Mm -hmm. And for us, it was a revolution for for this podcast. <laughs> yeah. Can can you think of an activity um, outside of science that has impacted your work? It, in a positive way, um, recreation does. Um, having time to um, chill out, um, have a beer with colleagues, uh, go on a cycle as I did yesterday. It was the longest cycle I've been on for a while, actually, um, <laughs> uh, uh, which I'm suffering from today. Those kind of things, they, 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 they uh, nurture the body as well as the mind. And of course the, we're, they're all connected. So I think recreation is the thing that really uh, does it for me. And that of course involves meeting people, being social. That is a very important dimension for me. So, so you said that you, We all struggle with getting the balance right. And you said that one of your tips is, is blocking out time. Do you have any other tips about how to get that life work balance or general balance in your life? 
Um, I think if one can stop from time to time at the end of the week or at the beginning of the week, just to reflect on the week ahead or the week past, even 15 minutes can give you a perspective and makes it more likely you'll do the right things in the following week. There are certain other things that I do try to keep in mind, such as uh, the enemy of the best is the good, the realization that there are many good things you could do. There's lots of rubbish things as well, but there's no way a scientist or anybody can do all the good things. So you have to decide what are the best and you try to make some time for those. So how do you, how do you decide that? How does that work? I think biologists are particularly poor about being able to decide what's important. You can see that by the way we write abstracts, everything is critical, essential. Um, we're not very good. (laughs) We're not very good at deciding what's more important than something else. It's good to put yourself in the perspective of others. Um, I have a couple of books that I do read. They're not novels. One is the perfect presentation. And, and, and one of the key things there is know the audience. Think who is the audience? What, what, what do they want to hear? What will be good for them? Not, not what do I want to tell them? Uh, so I think that's important. Another book is, um, a book all about, um, the principles of thinking clearly. Uh, and there are a number of things in that, such as sunk cost fallacy. Um, many, it's very difficult to switch projects off. And that's because we have this intrinsic ability, many of us, to think that something is worthwhile or more worthwhile because we've already put a lot of effort into it. You have to stand back and look at something, and that could be a project, and say, if I was presented with this project, these results for the first time today, irrespective of how much time have I put into it, what would I do? And then you see that this project is rubbish or is really, really good. And just because you've spent the last three months going nowhere on this project doesn't mean it's worth you spending the next two years working on. (laughs) So I think often in science, uh, and I'm not always particularly good at this, it's as important to decide what not to do as to decide what to do. Mm -hmm. Thank you. (laughs) So outside of science, do you have an individual celebrity fictional character that's inspired your life and, and work? That is a very difficult one. Um, <laughs> I, I, I do have a deep respect for uh, certain scientists, and, and, but not necessarily because of their science, but because of the kind of person they are. I talked many years ago with John Gurdon, who's, who's the founding director, chairman of this institute. Uh, and hearing from John that the reason why he did that was to get something done, not because he wanted to be a director of a department or whatever, was, was quite meaningful for me. In terms of other role models, um, I don't think I really have any, any strong role, role models outside of science um, other than some, uh, some uh, uh, maybe some um, heavy rock guitarists and, uh, <laughs> and, and singers. <laughs> Sorry if I disappoint you. No, don't, don't worry. <laughs> they, they, are, they are the really open question here. So uh, now, can you imagine if you had $100 million or euros as you want, uh, to spend on science, but not on your experiment. How will you use them? I think spending a hundred million pounds um, on something new that will bring together a set of relatively young individuals early in their independent careers in a new environment, could be a virtual environment, could be a real one, uh, where you would just give them enough funding to go off and do their science uh, but just tell them that, that they don't have to publish these results in journals. They just should be aiming to do science that has the potential to transform the world in a positive way. In my arena, that would be healthcare. And so it will be about getting a set of individuals together, um, taking constraints off and saying, look, you've got five years here. 
um, to, to do some great research uh, and let's just see what you can do with it. Ideally embed that in a, uh, in a, a, a dynamic environment um, such as Cambridge or another major entrepreneurial academic system where the, those people can make the most out of their science. My view is 20, 30 years ago, uh, there was this, um, this chasm between strong academic science uh, and commercial. Um, it was often the case that the translational was, was sort of giving up on quality science, or that was the perspective. But right now, you can, you can be doing truly cutting-edge science, but in a way that does have that potential to be applied. And for me, uh, that will be the best way of spending the money, ideally in an environment, therefore, that you'd leverage. Um, if, if you put that kind of funding behind a set of strong individuals in a strong environment, before you know it, it will be doubled, it will be tenfold amplified through mm -hmm. those individuals sucking in further funds uh, from other organizations. So on a smaller scale, <laughs> can you think of a purchase that you've made of, of less than a hundred pounds that has impacted your life? Mobile phones uh, cost a lot more than that nowadays. <laughs> um, um, when, when, I was, when I was a kid, um, a, a teenager, uh, I decided to get into the into the great outdoors, and so um, buying buying my first kit to be able to go camping was was okay. quite a formative experience. Uh, in more recent years, you know, just simple things that that, that might um, that might be useful in in and around in the garden um, that they they can be very very valuable valuable devices. Maybe the best way to spend hundred quid actually uh, would be to spend it over the course of a year um, going to the bar at uh, international <laughs> conferences where you spend a bit of time buying a drink from one of your closest colleagues and getting into <laughs> animated discoveries about uh, discussions about, um, uh, about what excites one another. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of the real advances that my lab has made or connections have been actually meeting uh, complementary scientists um, one example was meeting um, a chap called uh, Alan Ashworth, who was at the ICR in London at the time, is now in San Francisco, um, where we realized at a late night bar at a conference that um, I had some drugs. Um, these are DNA repair inhibitor drugs. And he had some cell lines deficient in BRCA1 and BRCA2. And so we cooked up this idea of seeing whether or not PARP inhibitors would be selectively toxic to some of those. Uh, and Eureka, that turned out to be the case. I'm not sure we would have done that experiment if, if, if uh, I can't remember who invited whom to the bar and <laughs> spent a few quid over beers. It cost you a, a couple of pounds for a beer. Um, so uh, apart from your success as a rock star, what is an achievement that you're particularly proud of? So in terms of my major achievements, um, of course, one can focus on work achievements such as publications and citations. But for me, it's actually the people coming through the lab and going on to do great things themselves. That, for me, is, in my mind, right up there in terms of my achievements. Also, at the personal side, um, maybe not being there quite as much as I ought to when my kids were young, nevertheless being, a, I think, a good dad to my kids and working with my wife uh, to, to get two uh, young adult sons who I'm very, very proud of, doing very different things in their lives, but, uh, but, but really on positive trajectories. And the third thing, thing, and probably the thing I'm most proud of, certainly from a career perspective, uh, is the fact that my first company, Kudos, developed a drug which has now treated 
close to 50,000 patients throughout the world, and a substantial faction of those patients are having their lives enhanced and extended. And of course, that impacts on their families and whatever. That's making AstraZeneca and Merck quite a bit of money. I don't get any royalties. But knowing that without me setting up QDOS, this blockbuster drug wouldn't exist is, is an amazing thing. Have you ever met anyone whose life has been saved by your drug? I've been fortunate to meet a, a few uh, ladies and actually one gentleman who's, uh, who've received Alaparib and have had substantial responses uh, in, in a couple of cases, apparent cures. So these are people who were with what was on paper an incurable disease is now totally in remission eight, nine years later. So that was wonderful meeting those individuals. I don't work at the clinical interface, so it doesn't happen that often mm -hmm. for me to do that. Um, and I guess also reflecting on the fact that DNA repair inhibitors uh, and these so-called synthetic lethal drugs, um, which the uh, Alaparib was the first example of that as a registered drug in the world, are now being explored uh, by a range of other biotech and pharma companies throughout the world. Mission Therapeutics is developing compounds and, and hopefully in the very near future will be going to the first patients uh, and address the therapeutics that are spending a lot of my intellectual uh, energy on at the moment. Fantastic company with a platform that I, I think really will be generating um, exciting medicines of the future. That's great. It must be very satisfying. So did you have a sentence on your the office door? Or if you don't, what, what would it be? What would be a one, one sentence summarizing the, the lab? It would be something along the lines of be excited about what you're doing, communicate with your colleagues, decide what to do, and then get exciting science done. That sounds good. You must have a big door. <laughs> <laughs> or it could be a rock and roll punchline, maybe. Maybe one of your, your own text. <laughs> Can you think of a time when things didn't go as planned and how did you uh, get back on track? In terms of work disappointments, uh, there are always going to be those experiments that you have an exciting hypothesis on paper. You think it must be true, but you do the experiment and you're wrong. And that's... <laughs> That can be disappointing, but that's the great thing about biology. You can think you can think some more about how biology works, but in the end, you just have to test and see if you're right. And sometimes the hypothesis-free experiments are, are sometimes the most exciting one. You cast a net into a, a new pond and see what you pull out. Now, that can also be exciting, or it can be disappointing if you pull nothing out. But as I learned over my uh, course of my career, it is actually um, very important to be resilient and move on. My PhD was probably my first year. Of my PhD was probably the greatest disappointment in my entire career to date. I based my whole first year and I worked my butt off in that year on a material. It was a yeast strain that turned out not to be what I thought it was. <laughs> and I learned a lot during that year, but I had to go back to basically to square one after almost one year of a PhD. And it was only a three year PhD. And that was devastating because all of that work that I'd done in that year came to absolutely nothing. And one thing it did teach me is even if somebody very, very notable gives you something and tells you something that this is what it is, if you're going to base a lot of work on that, you should really check it out before doing those experiments. So that was a very uh, difficult um, but character-building period. And I remember my supervisor at the time, Jean Beggs, um, just reflecting a year on with me, how proud she was that uh, I had the resilience to just pick myself up yeah. and throw myself into it again. Mm. But it was tough. So ha have you struggled with a particular fear during your career and how, how have you overcome it? 
I am a quite insecure individual. Uh, I'll often have dreams that are entirely based on insecurities. And so uh, I have a fear. Um, I have, um, what do they call it, imposter syndrome. No. I, I, I often find myself in a situation where I feel stupid, particularly in, in contexts such as the Cambridge College system. I didn't come <laughs> through that system. Very working class boy. I'm not very sophisticated. I don't, I don't, I didn't study classics. I can't speak Latin. You do rock and, and so, roll. <laughs> so, so that's my insecurity. And I guess that is, is, is a fear sometimes of being found out, but you can turn, the, it's not pathological. You know, I, I do know that I'm actually quite smart and I can get things done and I'm good with people. Um, but a little bit of insecurity is not a bad thing because I think it, it, it makes, uh, it, it's, it stops me. I think it stops people um, resting on their laurels uh, and sometimes procrastinating. Um, so I guess that's my main fear. That's, that's great. And this has been great, Steve. So we, we like to wrap up with our, our favorites. The, the other fear, yeah, go, I'll go, just go. jump in. <laughs> Uh, the, the, the other fear, and it's not really a fear is the, the realization of getting old <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's, it's something I'm, I'm, I'm learning to live with, but, um, it's, it, it's, uh, I've really enjoyed my career. I hope I've got many years to go, but, um, getting old, uh, is if we could, if we could do one thing in science, if we could stop getting old, that'd be great. <laughs> well, you can have your anti-aging Institute now in Cambridge. That, that, that will be good. Yes, absolutely. That might be the way forward. So, so we like to wrap up with a, a question. What, what advice would you give yourself if you met yourself 20 or 30 years ago? If I met myself... Um, at the beginning now, of your career, the, yeah. My, myself at the beginning of my career. Um, it, it probably would be follow your instincts, surround yourself with, with good people. but don't spend so much time on things that objectively aren't going anywhere. And we come back to this point again, knowing when to stop doing certain things. It's a real balancing act though, because there are many occasions in my lab where somebody I'm sort of advising to give up on something and they have plowed on and they made the breakthrough. <laughs> um, it is a really difficult thing. Yeah. And in the end, I would probably just say to myself, just trust your instinct and go where you feel um, is the right way to go. Um, because I don't know if I had done my life differently, it, it could have been more successful, but it could have been a lot less successful. Mm -hmm. uh, and if I'd done something differently on the first day here in the Gurdon Institute, maybe I would have been run over by a bus later on that day. <laughs> I don't know. So yeah. I would just say, go for it and follow your instincts. Okay. So uh, thank you so much. So we, we want to know uh, where can people find out more about you and your work, if you want to share that with us. Um, people can find more about me uh, by uh, attending conferences and going to, go, going to the bar or going to the poster sessions uh, where uh, I spend a lot of my time and efforts when, I, when I'm going to conferences. Uh, they can check me out on my lab website, which uh, gives people a, a good perspective on, on the uh, on the lab um, and on my lab website and elsewhere, you, you'll find links to various videos, talks that I've given over the years, um, which is my reflections on the science, but also the translational impacts. Uh, and I think people will get a flavor of me from those types of things too. Uh, of course, people can also ask um, members who've been in my lab over the years uh, for, for what I'm like, <laughs> and sure get some honest answers. 
Great. So some some of your your lab graduates or alumni are colleagues of mine. So I thank you for that, and for and for all you've done. I think you you this it's been great to hear your thoughts, but but also for all you've done, uh, bridging this gap in such a nice way between uh, between uh, fund top fundamental science and top applied science. Is there anything else you'd like to add to finish up? Um, not really. Other than I think conveying science is 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 really really important. Uh, and uh, the lonely pipette and other similar or related vehicles. Um, it's it's allowing people like me to talk about what they like talking about themselves often <laughs> and their science and their careers. Uh, but hopefully, and I'm sure you'll have examples of this uh, where you you get people over activation barriers. You you get people to think about things, and you are going to be shaping other people's careers, particularly younger scientists. And uh, so it's laudable what you guys are doing. I know you put a lot of time and effort into this. So thanks. So that's it for this episode. Thank you for joining us at The Lonely Pipette. We hope that you learned something new, that something resonated with your own experiences, or that you just enjoyed the science. Let us know your thoughts on Twitter at Lonely Pipette. And please share it with your friends in the lab. If you want to join our community, you can subscribe to the Lonely Pipette mailing list or mail us by following the link available on our Twitter profile. You will receive the next episodes directly in your mailbox. How cool is that? Stay tuned for the next show and remember, you might feel like a lonely pipette, but it doesn't mean you're alone. Tips from the Lonely Pipette can help you to do better science. A bientôt. A bientôt. Hey guys, one last thing to finish up. If you like the soundtrack of the show, you might want to know who is the artist behind it. The song is called Lovely Swindler by Amaria, a talented French artist who composes Electro Swing. We are really grateful for allowing us to use it. And if you like it too, the best thing to do is to share it. Thanks again and see you soon.